what a level-headed, educated, and well-informed guy that was, right? I mean, yeah, we're talking about we're talking about Prince Harry, right? Yeah, we had royalty <laughs> on our podcast today. That's the hook. No, Harry is a phenomenal guy. You can, you, you know, I love how put together his thoughts are. He knows what yeah. the strength is. He's got his parents and teachers and or education and friends as a as a community as a dad. Is in one of the, I think, the most competitive industries, payment gateways and payment architecture. So hats off for him to, to build what he's built. Absolutely. Yeah, as I said, it was really a good episode. And he gave so much insight into every aspect of the business, including the challenges that he's encountered and how he overcame it. Yeah, exactly, great man. episode once again. And if so, anybody's listening and you've got an imposter syndrome, if they've got an imposter syndrome, he takes it out of your system. If you're wondering if I should have a co-founder, he answers that brilliantly. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Thank you very much for joining Satish and I today. I'm going to dive into the very first question, and that is, can you share three significant moments that has taken place in your life that has shaped you into the person that you are today? You go going deep on that question one. We man. go in. Yeah, fast. Let's go for it. Wow. We go right in, Harry. There's no warm up. No one, no one, no introduction. Just like, come on, kick things off. No, I like it. I like it. You know, going back to sort of early days, school, I think school had a big influence on myself, my upbringing, especially my sort of secondary school. So I went to a school fairly local to myself. It was a secondary school where you did have to pay, uh, sorry, you did have to pass an entrance exam to get in, but you didn't have to pay to go. So it was quite a nice wide mix of people. So from various backgrounds, so you had you know, some affluent people, some lower sort of middle-class people and, you know, people from challenging backgrounds, but everyone was fairly well-educated. So it was just a nice sort of environment to be brought up in around different eclectic people. I think that had a big sort of impact on my sort of growing up and my sort of thoughts around running a business and going into sort of business alone. But I think as well as this sort of school environment, we also played rugby there. And I think, you know, rugby is a great team game that teaches you a lot of sort of foundational things, which you actually can bring you into a business environment. So I'd say school had a big impact on my upbringing and shaping on, on, on who I was. Definitely sort of parental figures. My my old man is, um, or, you know, he was in, set his own business up in, in the 90s and, and then did, you know, reasonably well for himself. And someone who I look up to and is not only a good businessman, but also a good guy and has worked hard to provide for the family, but also is just genuinely a really nice guy who I really do look up to and has aspired to be. So I think he, you know, parents and have had a big influence on shaping who I am. And then finally, I'd say just friendships and, you know, people that I stay in a circle with, I'd say there's friends that sort of come and go, but I've got a good group of sort of core friends that I've grown up with, surrounding myself with, which, you know, keeps you grounded, but it's also, you know, it's nice to have, you know, people who have the same sort of ambitions as yourself. So I'd say that there's sort of three of the things I'd say. Yeah. Man, if I, if I was a betting man, that's probably the perfect three things that everybody wants, a good education background, 
parents who support us and sort of this community of friends. A lot of entrepreneurs we meet don't have the luxury of those things and they dive into entrepreneurship either from a point of pain, something happened mm -hmm. in personal life, transition, COVID, whatever, and they've got this itch forever, they want to do it, or they have a problem that nobody else is solving in the world and they just can't stop thinking about it. You know, what I'm doing with Schoolio, with Dion and my team, I can't stop thinking about the inequalities in education and, and only the history will tell if this is a foolish move or not. But I'm in here, but your startup with this, you know, sort of healthy triangle, what led you to the startup? So, I mean, it, it, I have always wanted to do something on my own and I've tried a few things in the past, which have failed ultimately. What One of those was a previous tech startup, which I founded 10 years ago, but never really made the jump to go full time on it. And then about six years or so, I tried going into the sportswear industry, doing the triathlon cycling brand, which did reasonably well, but never got to the point as to where I, I could fully commit and sort of go full time on that essentially. So I'd already always wanted to try things. I was always keen at like keen to, to learn, but also implement strategies that I'd, you know, learned about rather than just sitting and reading, I actually wanted to try things. But neither of those had been successful. I think this business here is the ultimate blend of everything sort of falling into to line in terms of it was the right time, right opportunity. I have I had sort of built up 10 years of experience across sort of the technology space and my skill set, along with our the three other co-founders, really sort of worked well. So we we worked in a payment space, myself and the three other co-founders. And, you know, there was a lot of talk around open banking and open banking payments and the, the benefits that it could bring to merchants, which were, you know, instant settlement of funds, it eradicated chargebacks and it reduced fees significantly. So it was great for the merchant. And that was, that's what everyone was focusing on. But the major issue was that the adoption rates were quite low and the uptake wasn't there. So there's brilliant benefits for the merchant, but if they can't actually get people to check out, they can't materialize the benefits. So that's when we started to have a think as a group and the four of us used to train together. We used to go to the gym together and have conversations about work. So we, even though we were all in the same industry, we also used to train together. So that's how the sort of conversation came about. And it, we, we had quite a sort of not only a good relationship, but there was quite a good balance between the four of us as well in terms of. We have a technical founder, myself, who's more on the marketing side of things and growth. Then we have a sales-led founder and then an operational and finance-based founder. So it just, everything just seemed to work well. We had the sort of strong team, the market conditions were right for disruption. And that's where we've put the consumer at the forefront of, of what we do in terms of every time someone spends via our payment method, they accrue points. Very similar to the Amex model. And then you can use those points on various rewards, prize giveaway, and other things as well within our mobile application. So it's a, a putting the consumer at the forefront, sort of reverse engineers what all the other companies were trying to do. So that's how we sort of came up and sort of established the business. So I'd say there was a, a number of things that were just sort of working in parallel rather than one specific thing that sort of mm -hmm. led us to starting the company. It was a good time for the pitch, Dion. <laughs> I was, I know you want to do the pitch, but before you do the pitch, Satish, I just want to go back. No, you, I meant you Harry's two. pitch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a good time for Harry's pitch, yes. But just going back, Harry, you mentioned that you made two attempts that didn't work mm -hmm. out, right? What do you ascribe to those 
business is not actually working out. Yeah. So it's funny that the first time I set up a business, I was 22 years old and I started it again with three other people. So there was four of us again. The problem was, there, there were, well, there was a few sort of challenges and few problems. The first one being that we were all very similar in our skill set. So we were all sort of more commercially minded than technical minded. And we were trying to build a knowledge startup. Then we had to outsource the development work when none of us were really that technical. So trying to manage a development team with non-technical knowledge was challenging. And not only that, there was then differences within our sort of work ethic, what we wanted to do with a business. And we started like to develop the business without having these fundamental questions addressed at the start, like in terms of what do we want to do with the business? How much time are we all willing to put in? How much money are we willing to put in ourselves, et cetera? And it just got to a point where there was this, this lack of clarity and dysfunction between ourselves, which led to, you know, us being a year and a half in actually having a product that was nearly there, not quite ready. And, you know, I'd sort of gone full time on it. The other three weren't willing to put, make the jump, which was fair enough. Obviously they needed the stability in the full-time roles. And it kind of led to this, we've all got equal state, but some of us are doing more than others. So that was that challenge of that business. And it came to a point where actually I went back into going and sort of time job again. And then no, no one was putting the time, dedication, effort that it needed to really get it to the next level. So the business just heated off and we ended up just disbanding. The next business I decided to do alone. And I think that's the other challenge, like realizing you've got to do everything yourself. So I, I built a brand called Aerofin, which was a, like say a technical sportswear brand for triathletes and cyclists. And, you know, we, I did sell to, I think it was about 30 countries worldwide. We had 5,000 people that had paid, you know, we, we built it on Shopify, grew the Instagram following to 30,000. So there was some growth there, but it, it got to a point where it was, do I try and go full-time on this? It was making, you know, a sort of six-figure revenue. But again, the money that I was having to put in to get, the, you know, a marketing spend on the cost of the goods, you know, the shipping of, of the products, containing the products in a warehouse. There was just a lot of environmental challenges in terms of, you know, market conditions, which meant that the profit margins were, were squeezed and quite narrow. So it was like, do I just stay in a nice full-time position where I get paid quite well or do I make the jump? And I never made the jump to really like the time and dedication that it needed to be put in. So I, yeah, I think there's a few reasons, you know, you can make all the excuses in the world, but I don't think that the businesses were strong enough either, um, either of those. And whereas what we've got here is just a nice mix of everything, you know, the product's great, the team's great, the market conditions are right for us at the moment. And the solution, what we're offering to clients and customers is a good solution that is, is needed in the market. Is it correct for me to infer from this that you have a healthy attitude towards what people perceive to be failure? What was that? Sorry. I said, is it safe for me to infer that from this experience, right, you've got a healthy attitude to what other people might call failure? Yeah. I mean, whether it's a healthy one or not, but I think, you know, there's two ways to look at failure. Obviously you can look at it and say, that's a failure and, you know, it didn't succeed. And, you know, the other way to look at it is go, that, that was a failure, but what did I learn from that? And, you know, it's about taking away, you know, parts and going, actually, you know, initially I thought having a team of four 
you know, is never going to work. It can't work because, you know, like there's too many people pulling in different angles. And, you know, what if you're doing more work than someone else? And, you know, how is it fair? And then I went away and did it alone and then realized actually, you know, having a team is massively beneficial. Like you've not just got yourself relying on, you know, doing every single thing within the company, but also, it, you know, sometimes when you feel a stress, stressful situation, having someone to talk to about a certain situation can make you realize, actually, it's not that big, a bigger deal in the grand scheme of things. So being a sole founder, I realized actually, you know, maybe that is, is not the right way to go either. So I think just like, you know, the experiences along the way help you realize that actually they're not mistakes, they're just learnings. I think, you know, you can learn from every failure or every, you know, sort of challenge in life. There's always something to take away. And as long as you can take something away from it, you can always learn and develop that, you know, that's the sort of mindset I try to sort of have and maintain. Absolutely. Let's, you have touched a little bit on your business, but give us the elevator pitch. Tell us what Boodle is all about and why, what problem are you addressing mm-hmm. in the marketplace? Okay. So Boodle is an open banking payment solution that sits on the checkout of uh, various uh, e-commerce retailers. And we reward customers every time they spend via our payment proposition. So we are, we sort of describe ourselves as the other side of the coin to Amex. And what I mean by Amex is a fantastic credit card solution, which rewards customers every time they check out, but you only really get the benefits as an Amex customer, if you are on the affluent side and there's the whole other bracket of people that can't afford to pay 180 pounds for an Amex gold card and, you know, receive the benefits of those points or nor do they have the disposable income to spend 10,000 pounds a year to be able to actually earn points that actually give you any significant value. So what we are as Boodle is this alternative payment solution on uh, various checkouts across the internet, uh, where we provide points to anyone who checks out. And these points can be utilized in our mobile application on small sort of prizes, small sort of prizes, yeah, but also within prize giveaways. So we have various prize giveaways from vouchers to electronic goods, all the way up to vouchers for holidays. So a thousand pound voucher for a holiday of of your choice to your destination, just for checking out via Boodle. So even though there's only going to be, you know, sort of winners to each one of those prize, individual winners to each one of those prize, there's still a, you know, a sort of a gamification element and a rewarding element. Or you could, you know, build your points and use them on, you know, some of the partners that we've got where you could redeem for a free coffee or, you know, a spa day and things like that, that we're building into the app as well. But again, you know, it's just a more rewarding way to pay. We want to give back to the consumers. And then for the merchants, they get their funds settled into their account instantly. So they don't have to wait two to three days like you do with cards. The fees are reduced because you've not got the costly intermediaries, which card payments have obviously acquiring fees, scheme fees, interchange fees, all taking a cut of that. This is just a bank to bank payment. And then finally eradicates chargebacks and fraud as well. So benefits massively there for the merchants, but for the consumers, is that sort of gamification that rewards that loyalty element that we've built into our mobile application. I love that. A couple of questions. One, I love the gamification part, and there's a few players in that space that are AMAGs and et cetera. But on the back end side, as a business owner, I'm really excited to see how you guys are being able to reduce the sediment time and also sort of keep 
a low chargeback and things without giving away the secret sauce. Yeah. How is that model developed? So it, it, essentially, it's just we run on open banking rails. So open banking was introduced in the UK sort of or mandated in 2017. So it's the faster payment rails. Essentially, open banking, it just allows two things. So you've got account information service, which is AIS, which allows a third-party provider to be able to connect you, connect to your bank account in exchange, for example, providing better analysis and, and review on, for example, let's say some of the fees you may be paying, for example, on your mortgage, on your energy bills, electricity bills, and they can help you with spending and budgeting, et cetera. So, and then you've got the payment initiation service, which is just uh, allowing a customer to be able to pay a business directly via open banking rails. So we focus primarily on the PISP side of things, which is the payment initiation. So these banking rails allow instant funds from one account to another account. So again, you know, not giving away any secret sauce. And because it's two-factor authentication within a, with banking level security, it essentially means that, for example, if someone stole your phone, they couldn't enter your bank because they don't have your face or they don't have your fingerprint to be able to get into your bank account. So no fraud can actually happen or it completely 99.9% eliminates fraud. And then finally, with chargebacks as well, because chargebacks run or have been built for card cards, you know, if someone stole your card, for example, and made a payment on a card, that's why you would do a chargeback as an example. With this, you know, obviously no one's going to be able to steal your phone, get into your bank and make a payment. So it essentially eliminates the, you know, the risk of fraud and chargebacks. And then the fees are so low is because there's not all those costly middlemen. It's literally an API called to the bank and confirm that you've got the funds in there and able to make the payment. And then obviously the funds flow directly from the customer to, to the merchant. So again, it's, it's just utilizing the open banking rails essentially which what is what we do. We provide the technology around that and obviously have yeah. the consumer engagement up as well. And is that a UK UK solution or is that global from an open rail platform? So this, we focus primarily on the UK. We do have connections into about 1,800 banks across Europe as well. However, we've not gone into Europe just yet, just mainly because of obviously market nuances, et cetera. The US have ACH transfers as well. But I think they are looking to introduce open banking in 2024 and looking at sort of mandating it there as well. So it'll be interesting to see what they do in the US anyway. And tell me, Harry, where's the product at this point in time? Well, in terms of the business, where are you at? Yeah. So we have about 50 to 60 merchants live at the moment. So there we've been processing payments for businesses for the last probably two months now. So we started rolling out. And like I say, we're starting to gain some good merchant adoption. We, we have integrated into the likes of AeroCommerce, WooCommerce, Magento. And we've also been approved as a Shopify payments partner that we should be rolling out in the next few months. And then our mobile app, our V1 went live in sort of beta earlier this year. And then we've just sort of taking it to, or sort of taking it down to, to build a few new features and just to scale it up essentially. And we are releasing that be probably mid to end of May is sort of just being approved on the Google Play, Google Play Store and the Apple Store as well. So yeah, that, that should be rolling out at the end of the month. So again, that means that, you know, anyone who's previously spent by a Boodle will be able to download the app and the points will automatically pull through, which is great. So they can use those points on our various prize giveaways. 
So yeah, so at the moment, we're just rolling out with as many merchants. We've got some nice integrations that have been done. We've rolled out our pay by portal recently, which means any merchant that wants to send payment links via SMS or QR codes can do that. So that's, we signed probably 10, 10 merchants in the last week alone, just utilizing the pay by portal solution, which is a fully customizable solution for them. So again, yeah, at the moment, it's just really sort of trying to gain as much traction we, as we can with merchants. And then subsequently, you know, obviously try and drive customer adoption as well through that as well. Mm -hmm. I've got two related questions, Harry. One is, did you raise any money? And if you did, what was that process like? Two is a lot of founders coming into the space, especially today with global ability to search, fall into this over analysis of TAM and competitors, right? I'm old enough to know back in the days of pitching, what's your market and who's your competitor? What's your, you know, everybody did the graphs with the dots. And today, seemingly there's a competitor everywhere at all days and you sleep and you wake up as a competitor. As you're looking at your business, not only do you have sort of the fiat model, you've got this global opportunity with other markets potentially adopting, you know, your platform. But now there's an influx of crypto as a currency and all these things. How much of your time do you spend thinking about competition? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah. So we, we have done a raise to, you know, answer the first part of the question. We have done a pre-seed raise last year, October, 2022, for half a million GBP. And that was from angel investors. So we're fortunate enough to raise from primarily Northwest based business owners and angel investors. And that was just primarily from our network. So we'd spent, you know, past 10 years Myself and the co-founders, you know, all very similar sort of backgrounds and experience. So we'd all had 10 years each within this sort of tech world and build up, you know, networks, connections. So when we first went out to raise, it was funny because we started in, you know, sort of having conversations a good few months before, before October with the intention to understand a little bit more about what investors at this stage would want to see. And we'd built you know, part of the payments widget and payments application. But again, we needed that funding to really able to help us pull all the pieces together because there's certain things that were going to be a bit more costly that we had to, you know, put a bit of money towards in, you know, in relation to building our mobile infrastructure. So, yeah, so we went out initially to a few people that we knew that were, you know, like, like say, high net worth individuals that had done some previous angel investments mainly asking for some feedback, you know, so we built, you know, uh, a bit of a deck with our proposition, our go-to-market strategy, competitive, you know, analysis, a, a, you know, a financial forecast, which, you know, was probably completely, you know, completely wrong, really, in terms of it was done right, but our figures were probably, you know, like sky high in the air. It was a bit like, really, are you going to, but, you know, you live, you learn. <laughs> but, but so we went with, you know, Never with the intention to go like, will you invest? Because, you know, it's kind of like one of those when I think when you put people on the spot, they feel a bit like, whoa, okay, well, you know, I feel a bit obliged to have that meeting and then it makes it a harder no. So we went with the intention just to go, well, you know, here's our deck. This is what we're doing. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. And some of those meetings when, you know, they gave some feedback and it wasn't for them, but probably, you know, 60, 70%, you know, we showed the deck and they had looked through and they'd go, give us some improvements and maybe do this, maybe do that. Have you thought about this? I tell you what, I can connect you with someone else. And like say 60 or 70% of those actually turned into, well, actually, you know, I'd quite be quite interested in sort of coming on board on this round. 
so then that's when the, you know, this sort of conversation sort of evolved and you go back and do a proper presentation and a proper pitch. So yeah, we were really lucky. We've got, uh, you know, two, two really good investors who own a business in Manchester called Car Finance 24-7, which is a, a big finance sort of car business of sort of finance for cars, the finance brokerage. They're great with introductions that, you know, they've built a business of 600 people plus. And so they, they provide a lot of value to us. And then we've got a number of other sort of angel investors that bring, you know, equal value as well. So yeah, we've been very fortunate on that front. So, but it still was a tough process. Like, you know, even though we had good networks, you know, you have to go out there and, you know, try and connect with as many people as you possibly can, really, that can provide a little bit of value. And then sometimes they connect you to someone else who connects you to someone else. And I don't know, it's just a developing relationships we found. And then going on to competitors, I think we, we, yes, we do, we do keep an eye on the market, but I think you have to be quite, you know, sort of laser focused on what you're doing, because there's always someone out there that is going to be doing something that's really interesting, really cool. And it's great to read about, but sometimes you've got to just stay in your lane. And it's like, you know, AI is the big topic now. And, you know, and it's fantastic. You know, we love OpenAI and ChatGPT. It's brilliant. And there's some really nice AI tools coming about. And we keep an eye on what's going on, but we try to not let it distract us. And, you know, in, in terms of like 2023 is the year that you have to have AI. And if you don't have AI, no one's going to invest in your business. And I think, well, I think you always need to have an eye on what's going on. And AI is something that we're thinking yeah. about continuously, but it doesn't need to like, over, like completely overtake what your core proposition is. Like we do payments and then we've got the consumer engagement app with loyalty. Yes, there is opportunities to build AI in the future of, in terms of creating a more tailored experience. But at this moment in time, it's like, let's just get the product out there doing what we do and doing it well. And then we'll build and iterate. But like, this is our core focus. There is a market for it. We know there's a need for it. So let's stick to what we do. So I think that's the way we look at things. You know, there's some great companies out there. There's some great competitors out there, but equally let them do what they're doing. We focus on what we're doing. We'll happily read about, you know, what's going on in the industry, but just not let it deter us too much. Like, Harry, I mean, you mentioned earlier that it's almost as if all the stars were aligned. You know, the opportunity presented itself. It was the right group of people that came together. It was the right idea. But we have a segment called Confession Corner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is where you need to come clean and actually say, while all the stars were aligned, these are the things that's keeping me awake at night. And I'd like to understand, you know, what is the ghost in the closet that's actually bothering you as when you look at your business? Yeah, I mean... I sleep, you know, reasonably well at night, even considering I've recently, yes. yeah, I've had a, a, I've got a three week old baby, which is my third child as well. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So apart from her keeping me up at night, I sleep reasonably well. So, but I think it's one of those that like be, being completely transparent with where we're up to with a the business. There's some things which we're a lot further ahead than we thought we'd be, but then there's other parts where we are, you know, significantly behind. And, you know, even revenue being one of those, you know, we thought we would be revenue generating by December, 2022. Well, we were only revenue generating by March, 2023. So we were, you know, three months off, which isn't too bad, but then the revenue that we thought we were bringing in where we'd estimated with our financial forecast was a lot higher than when we, where we are actually are. So even though we're bringing in revenue when we're start, starting to see that growth, which is great, it's not where we wanted it to be, but. I think, you know, we've got a, a, we've got a, 
an understanding and a clear, you know, sort of route to, to, to that growth. And like I say, the merchants are starting to come on board now that the adoption rates are starting to increase. So th- there's challenges in everything. And then, you know, like the other day, one of our plugins broke our WooCommerce plugin, and then that gives you a stress for a little bit. But I think with business like this, you know, like you can get overly like absorbed and like really think everything is just like the end of the world. It's like the payment plugin goes down. Our clients are going to be, you know, like screwing and being like, what the hell's gone on here? But one thing that, you know, we look at and think is that, well, you know, we act as an alternative payment solution on some of these websites. So you still have card payments. So you can still say your debit and credit cards. You might have a buy now, pay later, and then you might have Apple Pay. And then you've got pay by bank, you know, which is Boodle. So if pay by Boodle's down, it is annoying. It's annoying for us. It's probably annoying for the client, but it's not fatal for us. It's not fatal for them. So what we will try and do is diligently resolve that. So let's, you know, make sure that we've got our CTO and our development agency that we work with working on that and getting that back up as quickly as possible and making sure it's tried, you know, it's fully tested before we roll it out again. So, but I think you can stress over little things like that and go, well, you know, this is absolutely, you know, you know, the biggest catastrophe and you let it stress you out or you just look at it and go like, okay, well, there's a problem. Like we need a solution and we start resolving it and we work on it. So I I really don't, you know, like there's nothing that really keeps me up at night, you know, like, you know, just being completely transparent, like, you know, I've got all confidence that this business like I say, it's already going in a good direction, but this will work. And if it doesn't, then, you know, it's like, we'll pivot, we'll, you know, try new things, we'll find a solution. I just, yeah, I'm just, I'm confident, but at the same time, like, I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we'll keep going. <laughs> Very I love that. I'm going to close off, I'm going to close off this podcast with one last question, if you don't mind, Larry, and that is, what advice based on your experience, would you give early stage founders out there? If there's one piece of advice you could give them, what would it be? I would say, personally, find someone else who has a complementary skill set to yourself that you have complete trust in and try and build it with them. And I'm not saying like, you know, being a solo founder is wrong. I just look at a lot of businesses and successful businesses and I find that the majority have a co-partner, a co-founder. If you look at the likes of, you know, for example, here in the UK, a, a big e-commerce business, Gymshark, there's a guy who everyone thinks is the sole founder, actually he built it with another guy. There was two co-founders and it's like, you know, so they built that like Amazon, he, you know, Jeff Bezos built it with, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, there's always two people behind, I think, you know, or not always, but a lot of the time, successful businesses, they might be one front man, but there's always more than one person who have built it. I think it just, again, you know, that's why you ask what, what keeps you up at night. I think having four people just alleviates some of that stress. You know, you've got, you know, if there's an issue, you get on the phone to them, you have that conversation and you realize actually it's not as big as problem as we, you know, as I originally thought it was. So de-stress, let's work out a solution. You know, you've got four minds or even if it's two minds, it's sometimes better than one mind. And so I, I would say like, you know, if you are going to do it, like it's, I think it's more enjoyable doing it with another person or multiple people, but you've got to have that trust and you've got to know that they they pull on the same sort of wavelength as you in terms of work ethic. So, I, and it's difficult and using that as the point, 
I did Aerofin, my second business alone. And it got to a point where I was like, I think if I found a co-founder here, this could go quite far. But then when you start speaking to people, it's like, I was like, well, I've spent a year getting it to, you know, a six figure turnover. Do I really want to give, what do I, what am I willing to give away? You know, what percentage, what, you know, will I charge them coming into, and it just created these big dilemmas in my head. So I think if you're going to start trying to start with someone and just know that it's going to be a roller coaster either way, whether you do it alone or whether you do it with other people. I appreciate that. Great answer, it's It's been great chatting to you. I'd like to thank you for your time. We're definitely going to be following Boodle. We're going to be subscribing to Google and it would be lovely to connect in the future just to see how the business is doing. Perfect. Yeah, no, really good speaking to you both. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Satish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by Bluemex. For more Year One content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.